Well, I have to say, if I could pick a uh, Christmas song, that's my favorite. I just love how that one's, how the melody is, and, and it leads perfectly into what we're talking about today. We're obviously walking through um, some different stories of Christmas as we're leading up to uh, Christmas Day, and um, we're, this year we're kind of looking at the different perspectives, the different people's perspectives. Last week, Pastor Aaron talked about Joseph's perspective. This week, we're going to talk about Mary's perspective. And so what I want to do is I want to, we're going to look at five things in Luke. Um, we're going to look at the, the person. God used the prophecy, the power, the proof, and the proper response. Each point, 30 minutes tops, and we'll be out of here. So, no. But uh, if you would, let's open up to our books to Luke chapter 1. Let's open up the Bible, and whether it's on your phone, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read this together. It's such a familiar passage of Scripture. And I just want to say, too, that me and Aaron, we're very grateful that you allow us the opportunity to be pastors, to be able to spend weeks just studying stories like this, to study Scripture. It's such a blessing, and I hope today that God's work will, uh, word will speak true to you as well. First um, chapter of Luke, starting in verse 26, the Bible says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these seasons that we get to reflect on such a common story as where you sent your son to save us. God, I pray that today your word would just, um, just speak to us in a mighty way, that we wouldn't leave here the same. God, remove the obstacle of me from the equation, and God, let us just dive into your word. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week, Pastor Aaron took a few moments to talk about the tradition of the Christmas tree, and if you missed that... I encourage you to go back. Uh, it's on our website, YouTube, or like our podcast. Listen to that sermon. I think it was very helpful for us. To There's all kinds of things that people say, you know, took place in different traditions. But he, I thought he, he gave us some good things to think about for sure and just to illustrate why we use the Christmas tree. And so today I want to take just a moment because I'm going to show you in a second why I got to this point. But I want to talk about Christmas, December 25th. And if you're like me, the first thing we read is in the sixth month. This is when the angel came to Mary. Now, I first, immediately, I'm like, wait a second, that's June. The math doesn't add up, right? <laughs> now, if you continue to read like we saw, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that we're talking about. It's not the sixth month of the year. However, it only takes a second for you to start asking the question or to start looking it up as to why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, and you're going to hear all kinds of stuff. And sadly, because of the age of the world we live in, you're going to hear the negative side first. You're going to hear that it's a pagan tradition. It's all these different things. And so I want to take a second and hopefully bring some clarity if anyone else is struggling or if anyone else is wondering. But ultimately, we're going to end in what God's Word says where this is a non-issue, okay? 
But the first thing that we see here, again, it's not the sixth month here of the year. It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then as we look at this, the first thing you're going to hear is that this was a pagan holiday that the Christians then took over. And we do know in 274 AD that there was pagans that were worshiping the Saturn sun god around the winter solstice, which would have been around the last week of December. And then it wasn't until 336 AD that Rome declared the national celebration of the Nativity on December 25th. And so people say, see, the Christians have just adopted what the pagans are doing and twisted it into believing Christ. And you'll, you'll see both spins. You'll hear some that say it's a pagan all the way and Christians shouldn't be a part of it. And then you'll hear that Christians took that and turned it back to focus on Christ. But here's the reality. We have other documentation too. And in 202 to 212 AD... A Christian commentary wrote on Daniel, and he said that the first advent of the Messiah was born in Bethlehem was December 25th, a Wednesday. And he goes on to explain kind of where that fit in the realm of history. And so we have, when you look at two things, you're going to just hear about pagans doing this, but then you're going to hear about a Christian talking about this. It frustrates me that we just naturally believe the Bible's got to be false because a pagan did something. The reality is none of us know anyone who worships pagan false god on Christmas, so we won this battle if there was one, Right? But we are told in Scripture, too, that there's a reason that this, this date is, has been held to. So we read that it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pre pregnancy, which tells us that John the Baptist was born six months prior to Jesus. Now, it's interesting, because in chapter 1, Gabriel comes to Zechariah. We're told he's a priest of the division of Abia. Now, Abia, we're told, was divided out in 1 Chronicles 24 by David. He's the eighth division of the priesthood. So in First in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is the priest of the division according to the custom of the priesthood. So when that's where we go back to Chronicles. Where is the custom of the priesthood? The eighth division is of Abia. So that's when Zechariah was serving according to that division. Now, Jewish scholars said that that division serves twice a year. They all serve twice a year, two different times. They serve, they're in the, the temple, they go home, they come back and serve a second term. Now, to make it simple, because again, He's six months before conception, all this stuff. I'm just going to try to make it simple for us. If Zechariah, according to the eighth division of Abiah, would have been serving on the first term, then theoretically the birth of Christ would have happened in late September, like the last week of September. If it was the second term, then it would have been late December, the last week of December. So we see a biblical grounds as well that December 25th makes sense to possibly when Jesus was born. We see... We see that in Scripture, we see that in the commentary, and then we also see that pagans started doing stuff around that date as well. But here's the reality. We don't know for sure. God does not specifically tell us December 25th anywhere in Scripture. And before that bothers us as Christians, we need to be reminded that God's Word is sufficient in all things, and that means detail as well. If God specifically tells us something, we need to know it. If He doesn't specifically tell us, we don't need to know it. There's no harm in trying to figure it out, but ultimately, we don't need to know certain details he doesn't tell us. And if we think we do, what does that say about our view of who God is and the sufficiency of his scripture? Now, I want to end, like I said, with some scripture that makes it very clear to us how we're to handle things like this. Romans chapter 14, and then we're going to get into our passage. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6 says this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. 
while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. When we're not given the specific details, we're to be fully convinced in our own mind what it is we're doing. I'm just here to tell you, me and my family, we use December 25th just as a time to remember the birth of Christ, our Savior coming to the world. And we do that every day too, right? But you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. We're not given the details, but God's word is sufficient in the details. We don't know. If he hasn't told us, we don't need to know, okay? So let's dive into the, this miraculous story as revealed to Mary. And I hope that was helpful. If not, just, you know, move on. So, <laughs> um, so again, we're going to see five things in this. We're going to see the person God used, the prophecy, the power, the proof, and the proper response. The first thing we see is the person. The person that God used in this miracle. In verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Again, last week, Pastor Aaron talked about Joseph and that he was betrothed to Mary, right? And in Matthew, where it's mentioned that Joseph is a son of David. Here in Luke, we're told that Joseph of the house of David. Now, this is important because the prophecy of the Messiah has to come through the line of David. Now, Jesus was fully supernatural miracle, aside from any of the flesh stuff. However, the earthly parents God gave him were both from the line of David. Matthew tracks uh, Joseph's line uh, through David. Luke tracks Mary's line through David. So I think that's incredible how God, there's no room for error in this. He truly was through the line of David. So let's look at who Mary was, right? Notice what Gabriel says to her, the greeting that's given to her. Gabriel says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this is interesting because this doesn't happen this way all the time. Most of the time, the angel shows up, they fall down, he says, do not be afraid, right? But here, the, the first time Mary recognized the angel, he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I would hope if I ever see an angel, that's what it is. Not that, whoa, wicked one, you know, or something like that. But here's the thing, as we look at Mary, I want us to, we, we got to understand something. It frustrates me because Mary never claims to be what other people have said she is. But for us to understand who Mary is, we got to look at what she's not. We live in a society that has raised her far above who she actually is. And I don't want you to think that I'm somehow bringing her down. She was never raised that high. If you look at uh, some, of, you'll hear some of the Catholic prayers say, Hail Mary, full of grace, which literally means Mary, full of grace. And that's an accurate statement according to this greeting. This O favored one means full of grace, right? It means that you have been favored, blessed, and endowed with grace. However, certain religions have then twisted that in assuming that that means Mary is something other than what it actually says. They'll say that she's the source of grace. She's the giver of grace. They'll even say she's holy and without sin, equal with Jesus. Now, they won't say she's equal with God because they brought Jesus down, but we know Jesus is God, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But the reality of it is that this greeting says, Oh, favored one, means that Mary's not the giver of grace. She's the recipient of grace. Again, it means favored with grace, blessed with grace, endowed with grace. She received grace. She wasn't the one who gives grace. This word for, oh, favored one, is only used one other time in Scripture in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 6. And it speaks to all believers who are blessed or favored with grace. Mary is favored. She is blessed, just like every other Christian. And that doesn't belittle her. Friends, there's no greater gift than we can receive is the grace from a holy God, even though we're sinners. There's no greater thing to, to be given. And it just frustrates me because, again, Mary doesn't claim these things. Mary doesn't claim to be what people say she is. 
She doesn't claim to be the source of grace. Jesus does. She doesn't claim to be the mediator between God and man. Jesus does. She doesn't say her name saves. It's Jesus' name that saves. And she doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said that. Mary doesn't claim to be more than she is. But it's important for us to recognize who she is. So if she doesn't claim to be this way, why do people run to this conclusion? And it's based off of what's called the retribution principle. Now, the retribution principle is not true. However, it's something that people all through Scripture struggled with and all of us struggle with today. And what it basically means is if you're blessed, like if you're blessed with things, then you've done good. If you're cursed with things, you've done bad, right? We do that all the time. We look around, if we, whatever we deem successful, if someone's successful, they must have done something right. If they're not, they must have done something wrong. And then spiritually, the retribution principle says, if you're blessed, God is blessing you, therefore you're obedient or you're good or faithful. If you're not being blessed, therefore you're wicked or you're cursed. So when we look at Mary, they come to the conclusion, let's look at the miracles for a second. There is no miracle greater than the Messiah coming to the virgin, right? This is the prophecy that was foretold. This is the Savior coming to the world. There's no greater miracle. And since Mary was chosen, therefore she must be the greatest, right? But what about Job? Remember Job, who had wealth, prosperity, reputation, 10 kids. He had it all. And in a moment, everything was taken away. And there's a temptation with the retribution principle to be like Job's friends, who said they heard about the wicked or the evil that had happened to Job. They run to him. They say, Job, clearly you've done something wrong. Repent and you'll be saved, right? That's what they keep saying. Like, this is you, God. It's proof. God is cursing you because you must have done something. See, we know that's not true. Look what God says in Job chapter 1, verse 8. God says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? We know for a fact that Job did nothing wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened, right? God says that over and over, Job was without sin in these things. So the retribution principle is simply not true. How do we explain what happened to Job? Everything that happens is for God's glory. God chose Job to display his glory in one way, just like he chose Mary to display his glory in another way. This idea that the blessing somehow says something about who the person is is just simply not true. Look at all the apostles. Look at Jesus, you know, who was crucified. So we know Mary's not the source of grace. She's not equal with God. And one of the other ways we can really clearly see that, and we're going to see in this passage, when we compare her to Jesus, Right? Jesus knew who he was. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to see Jesus confused about who he is. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be equal with the Father. God says he's the Son. And nowhere does Jesus say, whoa, what is this all about? But notice when Gabriel comes to Mary and says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. If that meant that she was the source of grace and equal with God, why did she respond this way in 29? But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This word greatly troubled means troubled to the maximum, wholly disturbed. She's trying to discern what type of greeting would this be. If she's God, why would this come as a shock to her? Jesus knew who he was. Matthew chapter 3, when he uh, goes down to John the Baptist to get baptized, he comes up, the Spirit falls on him like a dove, and then a loud voice from heaven cries out, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus isn't just like, what? Right? Immediately after that, he goes in the wilderness to be tempted. And over and over and over, the devil says, if you are the son of God, do this. Nowhere does Jesus say, why are you calling me that? Jesus knew who he was. 
Here's the reality. Mary knew who she was too, right? She didn't claim this. Mary knew who she was. And she responds the same way every sinner does, with fear. In verse 30, Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Mary. A holy person doesn't have fear for a holy God. But a sinner is terrified in the presence of holiness. We see this very clearly as we look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Before sin, we're told that they were just walking through the garden. And we can allude that God was there with them walking. Because then when they sin, what happens? God's walking to the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? Right? This was something changed. Something was different. Notice how Adam responds after sin. Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. See, Mary knew who she was. She was a sinner, therefore she was afraid in the presence of holiness. She also goes on at the end of chapter 1, or end of the story, in Elizabeth's there, we're going to get to that in a moment, and listen, her song of praise says this, in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Someone who's never sinned, someone who's never facing death as a punishment, does not need a Savior. Mary knew exactly who she was. Jesus never claimed he needed a Savior. He was the Savior, right? The Bible is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, since Mary was a sinner, she responded like a sinner with fear. But again, we shouldn't look down on Mary, and it frustrates me that we almost feel like we have to do that. We're just, this is who she is. To elevate her to something else is false. But as we look at Mary, just like you and I, who needs a Savior, we also look at how God used her, and we should read this story, and we should rejoice with her to be chosen to play such a huge part in God's plan, all to the glory of God. Gabriel again says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She had right to be fearful, but the angel says, No, look, God's chosen you. It's going to be okay. So we see the person that God chose was Mary. The second thing we see is the prophecy. Look at verse 31 with me. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Now that might not hit us as hard as it would have hit Mary. right? We're not always up on all the prophecies. But for 700 years, this prophecy has been told, and everyone's looking forward to this Messiah that they know is going to come through a virgin. This is the incredible thing that they're waiting for. And then Gabriel says, this is what's going to happen. You've been chosen to fulfill this prophecy. Last week in Matthew, um, Pastor Aaron talked about Joseph where the angel came to him and he quotes Isaiah 7.14 to give Joseph confidence to go ahead and marry, uh, marry Mary. That's weird, right? To take Mary as his wife. We'll say it that way. And what he says, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. He says, look, don't be afraid of her. For behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Gabriel prophesies the same prophecy, or I'm sorry, now I'm all messed up. Gabriel paraphrases the same prophecy, and the reason he paraphrases is because now Mary is the one, right? So instead of saying a virgin shall conceive, instead he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Imagine what she was thinking, this prophecy that she'd heard about. From, and for centuries, they're just waiting and waiting, and now Gabriel says, you're the one. You're the virgin that's going to bear this son. Now, you might have noticed, if you're like me, that the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 says, You shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Gabriel tells Mary that you will call his name Jesus. And sadly, some jump to that and they're like, Ah, contradiction. The Bible's full of lies. Can't be trusted. 
Why do we let people do that? Honestly. The next time somebody says something like that, ask them to prove it. And what you're going to find is that they're going to be a blabbling fool. They have no idea what they're talking about. Don't just, I can't stand when somebody's like, oh, it's a contradiction, without any proof whatsoever. Why, why does it say something different? Well, let's look at it. Yes, Isaiah 7.14 says, you shall call his name Emmanuel. But in Isaiah 9.6, it also says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the prophecy that Gabriel tells Mary, he also says that he'll be called the Son of the Most High God. So the reality of it is, Jesus has many names. This isn't a contradiction, and the proof of that is how Matthew, or Joseph responds in Matthew. Remember, Joseph has a dream. The angel comes to him, quotes Isaiah 7.14 to him, and then he wakes up, and notice what he does in verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did what he was told. And he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now notice this, and he called his name Jesus. Even though the prophecy said you need to call him Emmanuel, he calls him Jesus, and that was what he did what the angel told him to do, right? Because there's many names. This isn't a contradiction because God's word is true. When you see something like that, dive in a little bit. It frustrates me how quick we are wavered in our faith and we just buy what everybody says. Ask them to prove it sometime. Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There'll be no end. So there was one prophecy of the virgin, that's Mary. And then the other prophecy is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. He, he proves who this child's going to be. He connects the two. This has got to be incredible for Mary to be thinking through this, that I'm the one that God's going to fulfill this prophecy through. It's, it's amazing. It brings us to the third point, the power, Right? Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, Mary's not questioning or doubting or in disbelief. And we know that when we compare her and Zechariah. Zechariah is right before the Mary in, the, in Luke's gospel here. Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he says this in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. and Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. He goes on to explain who John's going to be. He says that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Remember that when we get back to that. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and prepare the way for the Lord, right? Notice how Zechariah responds in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Now on the surface, it seems they're asking the same thing. Gabriel says, Hey, Mary, you're the virgin. This is going to happen. She says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Then he tells Zechariah, hey, this is going to happen to Elizabeth. He's like, how will I know this? I'm old. My wife's advanced in years. It seems to be asking the same question. However, the response of Gabriel shows us something radically different. To Mary's question, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. And then in verse 19 and 20, this is how the angel responds to Zechariah's question. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Notice the difference? Gabriel makes it very clear that Zechariah didn't believe, yet Mary did. And Elizabeth proves that later on in Luke. Mary believed these things. And so when we look at the question again, Mary just says, how will this be? And the Greek means, in what manner will this take place? Right? There's a sense of curiosity. She believed that what he said was true. Now she's just curious. How will this happen? Because I'm a virgin. How is this going to take place? Zechariah, on the other hand, says, how shall I know this? Which in the Greek means, by what will I come to know? What proof do you have for me to believe this? And obviously, we know he didn't believe when he asked this question. 
Mary's faith's incredible. And when we compare Zechariah and Mary, who should have believed more? Right? Zechariah prayed for this. He prayed that they would have a son. His wife was barren, and yet when it comes true, he doesn't believe. I don't think Mary prayed to be the virgin that the prophecy fulfilled. I think this was a shock to her. Yet she believed and he didn't. Zechariah was a priest who served the Lord, went into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, yet didn't believe the prophecy. Mary's just a young woman and believed the prophecy. Of the prophecies, who should have known them better? Zechariah, the one who's teaching God's people, he knows these prophecies, and what Gabriel tells him is is prophesied in Isaiah as well as Malachi about his son, John the Baptist. Yet he doesn't believe. Mary does. Zechariah also knew that this had happened before. Can you think of any other couple in in the Bible that was old, past the year, that God blessed with with a son? Exactly. Abraham and Sarah. Would would Zechariah have known about Abraham? Is he a big deal? Yeah, very big deal, right? When Jesus, comes, when Jesus comes and tells, you know, starts sharing the gospel, what does everybody say? I'm a child of Abraham. Everything's Abraham. That's a huge deal. That is something that was taught over and over and over and over. They knew that this Messiah was going to come as a child of Abraham too. This had happened. When, Ze- when Gabriel tells Zechariah this is going to happen, it isn't a, just a crazy idea. This has happened before, and it's a story that's been told thousands and thousands of times. Yet he didn't believe Mary. What about her? What's she thinking? This is the impossibility of impossibilities, right? This has never taken place. It was prophesied, but there's nothing to look back on. Yet she believed. I just find it interesting that Zechariah, as he asks for proof, he's struck with silence. I think of a priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, and it says that he, the people on the outside are wondering where, what he's doing because he's taking a while. And yet he can't even come out and lie about being found unfaithful, right? He can't even speak at this point. Mary believes and her questions answered when she asks, how will this happen? Gabriel explains how the power is going to come upon her. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And I talked about this a few weeks ago as we looked at the Holy Spirit's role in creation. And this idea of come upon and overshadow is the same imagery we see in Genesis chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters. And we talked about the Holy Spirit is the power in which the Father does everything through the Son. Now sadly, some have taken this and said that God had relations with Mary. That's just a gross misinterpretation of what's going on. In fact, even the Greek, all throughout Scripture, sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the person of the Trinity. Yet in this specifically, it's only referred to as the power. There's no way you can interpret this and look at that way. There's no way to interpret a way that God somehow had relations with Mary. This was fully supernatural, using the same power he put on display during creation. I read one uh, website that their belief in Mary was that she was the daughter of God the Father, the mother of God the Son, and the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's nothing further from the truth. There was no physical relations at all. And we know that because of how Gabriel responds in 35. Therefore, because of how this is going to happen with the Holy Spirit, therefore the child will be called holy, the Son of God. This word holy means sacred, set apart, different from the world. And he's not different because he's half man, half God, like some Greek mythology. He's different because he's 100% God, 100% man, all done supernaturally by God, and Mary played no part in it at all. He's going to be called the Son of God, which means that he is God. John 5.18 clearly shows that they recognized that when he said he was the Son of God, he was claiming to be God. This miracle was accomplished by the Holy Spirit 
fully on God's control. Like he is fully supernatural. Yet Mary was chosen to carry the baby for nine months. That was her role in this miracle period. So we see the person that God chose. We see the prophecy fulfilled. We see the power in which it happened. The fourth thing we see is the proof. Again, Mary didn't ask for proof. She was curious at how this was going to happen. But God knows what we need, right? In verse 36, Gabriel says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, we're not giving clues that Mary knew the prophecy that was told to Elizabeth. I think we could assume that this is the first time Mary knew Elizabeth was even pregnant. However, we know that she goes to her house, so she knows who she is, and she knows how old, right? This is another miracle of God. And I want to read, it's not going to be on the screen, I just want to read this, this short story when she goes to Elizabeth. Because what you're going to find is this isn't just proof for Mary, it's also proof for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Which we'll see in a moment, it just shows how great our God is. In verse 39, it says, In those days Mary rose and went to the haste with the, into the hill country into a town of Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Can you imagine that type of greeting? That's never happened to me. I've never knocked on somebody's door and then been blown away with this Holy Spirit-filled you know, thing. This is incredible. But what I love about this is this was proof for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Remember, Zachariah was slapped with silence. He couldn't speak. Now, we know he could write because we see that later. But imagine him fully aware that he was in unbelief of what God said. And then his wife becomes pregnant at old age. And I don't know about you, but... I don't know that she'd be that excited about it, right? It's probably not something you look forward to. And she doesn't know it's the miracle, right? So Zachariah has to watch all these things go on with his wife, and he can't talk to her. He can't explain to her that this is what the angel said. Yet imagine Zachariah when he hears that the baby leaped in the womb. Because remember what the prophecy said, that this son, John the Baptist, would be filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. Zechariah wanted proof, and he was disciplined for disbelief, yet God comes over and proves it to him that what I said was true. Zechariah didn't believe at the beginning, but we know at the end, when Elizabeth has the child, they ask, what name? And she said, John. And they're like, wait a second, there's no one in your family named John. You know, and they question her. They look over at Zechariah, they're like, hey, what do you want? He gets a tablet and writes, John. His name shall be called John, and immediately he could speak. Imagine him. At the beginning, he didn't believe. He asked for proof. He was disciplined for it, yet God proves it to him anyway. Now he believes. And then right after that, he, gets to, he does this prophecy. And I would have loved to have heard him actually say it. Nine months dealing with the regret of this unbelief as a priest, and yet God proves it to him, and now he has a chance to speak. It would have been an incredible time. But this proof was also for Mary, Right? We're told that Elizabeth is in her sixth month. Then we're told in those days Mary went to her. Now, I don't know how long that took, but we know that she stayed there for three months, and then after she went home, then Elizabeth had her baby. So if you do the math, it was very quick. And my point in that, I've never had a baby. Contrary to what some say, only women can. But I've heard that you don't always know right away that you're pregnant, right? And this is a very, very short amount of time. I think before Mary would have physically known something happened. She goes to greet Elizabeth, and what does Elizabeth do? Filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, not only has it already happened, but it is the Lord that the God said. I mean, what an incredible God we serve. Mary didn't ask for proof. She just believed, but yet God proves it to her almost immediately. 
The God we serve is incredible. Gabriel says, for nothing is impossible for God. And what a reminder for us today, too. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. We have a confidence of that. We've seen all throughout human history that come true. So we saw the person, the prophecy, the power of the proof, and lastly, we're going to close, we see the proper response. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we've already seen, Mary's just like us, a sinner in need of a Savior. Yet her faith is something to look up to. Her response to God's call is the same as Joseph's, and it's something that we would hope to be the same. All throughout Scripture, we have these models of this incredible faith that when God tells them to do something, they respond. This wasn't an easy decision for Mary. Just like we saw last week, it wasn't an easy decision for Joseph. Marriage and engagement was a serious thing. They took sin very, very serious, much more serious than we do. And Joseph was wanting to divorce her in private, right? Mary's told this is going to happen before Joseph even knows. Imagine what's going on through her mind. If she's found out, are you going to convince somebody, right? And there's a death penalty linked to this. We don't see her ponder this. We don't see her question this. We just see her obedience to this, fully understanding that God will take care of it. And you might say, well, it's easy for her because this was prophesied. She knew this was going to happen. Well, again, it was prophesied 700 years before. And here's the reality. How many people know that the Bible says Jesus is coming back, but they don't believe? Because we can look to Mary as one who had faith that we should all want to have. Pastor Jeremy at Marysville used to say, when God tells you to do something, the only proper response is yes, sir. We have a confidence in that what God says will come true. This Christmas story is an incredible one. God sent his son to save sinners like you and me. But it's not just a story. It actually took place. God sent his son into the world to pay for your and I's sin. He rose again on the third day, and he's given everyone life who believes in him. We're told the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? I'm going to ask the praise team to come. And if you would, just bow your heads with me a moment as we reflect on this. We're given a choice when we're faced with God's word and prophecy. Are you going to believe it or not? As I mentioned, this Christmas story doesn't end with Jesus just being born. It doesn't end with him rising again. It's ultimately going to end with him coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the world. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you believe that, Romans tells us to call upon him and you'll be saved. I pray you do that. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the details that you've given us. God, we thank you for the, the opportunity to have the, your word in our language so we, we can understand. God, I pray that as we approach um, this Christmas season, as so many just celebrate your birth, that we would look at it in a new light and understand it's not just a fun, heartwarming story. It's a reality that a holy God sent his son to die for sinners, and that when we believe in him, we can be saved. God, we thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you for who you are. God, I pray that you'd be with us now as we respond through song. In Jesus' name, amen.